0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today marks the final episode in our four-part STEM series looking at women in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and
0: mathematics. Yes, it's math day here on Stuff Mom Never Told You. And as we've been doing with the other STEM conversations we've been having, let's first look a little bit at history. Because for math in particular, it goes back quite a ways, all the way to ancient Alexandria with Hypatia, who's one of the earliest and certainly best known female mathematicians. Yeah, her dad, Theon, was one of the last members of the Library of
1: Alexandria, and she followed in his footsteps studying math and astronomy. Um, She didn't actually have a happy ending, though.
0: Yeah, she was eventually beaten to death with roofing tiles by an angry mob of religious zealots, but... Thankfully, things have improved. I mean, we should say, though, that uh, Hypatia was so notable for the the work and the scholarship that she was doing at the time. And I don't think it was that she was a woman studying math and astronomy that got her uh, killed by an angry religious mob, but more the fact that she was an academic. And academia was a bit at odds with, obviously, religious zealotry.
1: Hmm. Indeed. Well, moving forward, we have Winifred Edgerton Merrill. She was the first American woman awarded a Ph.D. in math from Columbia University. But this was not as recent as you might think.
0: This was in 1886. Yeah, the board of Columbia initially denied her request to pursue a Ph.D., of course, uh, but in her obituary, it was funny how uh, math was described as a quote unquote masculine pursuit of hers. And even though she had to overcome that initial obstacle at Columbia, she did gain a lot of notoriety at the time. She was very well respected in her day. And important to our conversation about women and diversity
1: is Euphemia Lofton-Haynes, who's the first African-American woman to earn a Ph.D. in math in 1943 from Catholic University. And by that time, many black women were
0: earning master's in math. But if you think about it, though, we have Merrill earning that first Ph.D. in 1886. And it's not until 1943 that we have Haynes earning the same degree. And that's something that will come up again where there is that... Gap, Not just gender wise with math, but also in terms of socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds. But then if we want to fast forward to today, just for an example of a woman who's doing really amazing things with math, one of the 2013 MacArthur fellows is statistician Susan Murphy and uh, she collects and develops methodologies to evaluate courses of treatment for people who are coping with chronic and relapsing disorders, especially uh, things like substance abuse and depression. And she wanted to have an impact on real life, kind of like what we were talking about in the engineering episode. She really sees an altruistic way to use statistics
1: to improve people's lives. Man, I took statistics in college my my freshman year, and that was different from the other things that
0: I enjoyed doing. Yeah, I took a statistics course as well. It was the one math class I was required to take in college as a journalism major, and it was a summer statistics course. Students would show up in their swimsuits. <laughs> they were basically on a pool break to come to class, and yeah... <laughs> It, it was it, the, the imperative to save lives. I'll say in that basic statistics course wasn't there. Yeah, but it was it was still neat to to learn those things. Um, but what Murphy does, she calls them just in time adaptive interventions. Hmm. We were not learning that in my statistics course. But I will say though that what what she does is a neat application of how math also intersects with uh, psychiatry, mm-hmm. mental health, and also social programs. Absolutely.
1: Also, speaking of those different avenues for pursuing a career, let's look at some of the fields that math majors enter. Those can include teaching, finance and
0: economics, or, you know, like Murphy, you can be a statistician. Yeah, there's also actuarial science, which is analyzing statistics to calculate the probabilities of things like disability, unemployment, etc. And there's also computer science that goes along with it, operations research, cryptography, which is neat, um, budget and analyses, ecology. Um, and if you go into a math specialty, probably outside of just basic teaching, you can earn a, a decent
1: income for sure. Yeah, the math specialist median income comes to $74,350. That was in 2010 with growth expected in that sector. And so it makes me sad that I, you know, when I was in high school, I looked my math teacher in the face and I was like, I am never taking any more math.
0: I feel like throughout this entire STEM series Caroline you and I both with our liberal arts background both as journalism majors in college <laughs> have spent some reflective times <laughs> thinking about what could have been if those scientific mathematics seeds had maybe been planted and watered a little a little more diligently back in the day but um, if we look though at the math pipeline of all of the Letters in the STEM alphabet. (laughs) The M is doing the best. Yeah.
1: Um Women earn 43 percent of the math and statistics bachelor's degrees, but they make up just 27 percent of math PhDs. So there's that pipeline theory again that you're losing women as they get older and go through the educational system.
0: Yeah. And similarly, women comprise only 26 percent of the computer science and math profession workforce. So kind of like with the situation for engineering plenty of bachelor's degrees, but then there's that major drop-off once you get into the real world. And unfortunately, in real-world terms, new census data shows that that 26% is a drop from a 34% high in 1990. I wonder what happened. Mathematician people, can you tell us? (laughs) Maybe we need
1: some actuarial scientists to maybe dig through these stats for us. Exactly. But if you look just at mathematics careers, women's participation is actually up to 47 percent from
0: just 15 percent in 1970. So So that's good. Yeah. So maybe the that computer science gender gap is pulling down that overall statistic. Um, but one of the most persistent stereotypes that is talked about when it comes to engaging girls in STEM is this idea that girls aren't good at math. And so even though there are a lot of women who are pursuing these degrees, there <laughs> is still this debate that circles back around to this basic question of whether or not our brains are as good with numbers compared to with words. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a whole bunch of
1: hooey, although I say that and then I'm going to admit that I was I have been terrible at math my entire life. I had tutors forever and. Um, I just, I never, it never really clicked with me.
0: But that's so, in the same way that you have a a guy who can say the same thing. Sure. Who might be more of a word person. Thankfully, you and I don't have to represent the entire population, but when you average everything out and look at all of girls versus all of boys, you see those generalizations, those assumed gender differences start to disappear. And Elizabeth Spelke, is someone who we brought up in our first conversation on women and science. And she is a Harvard psychologist and uh, studies a lot about cognitive development in babies. And she performed a meta-analysis which found that babies as young as six months perform equally well on adding and subtracting. Yes, that's right. Infants can do their own very rudimentary forms of addition and subtraction. And from those earliest stages, Spelke says, no difference between the male baby brain and the female baby brain. So, you know, we have
1: these infants doing all of that crazy infant math, yes. which, is, which is crazy time for me. I think that's interesting. That's and really adorable. And adorable. I wonder what they're adding. Like, how many milk bottles? I don't know why they have a high-pitched voice. Anyway, so, boys and girls do perform equally well in math until... They start getting higher up in school, basically around puberty time.
0: Yeah, th- there are differences that emerge. For instance, girls tend to be better at computation, whereas boys tend to be better at problem solving. But when researchers look at what's going on outside of school, they think that perhaps these gender differences in our extracurricular activities might simply be socializing and preparing boys better for Math fields.
1: Right. And so boys were more likely to participate in STEM-related activities, conduct at-home science experiments, and spend time on the computer and own a calculator. I only recently, P.S., got rid of my TI-85. Don't let my parents hear this
0: podcast. Um, Whereas girls spent more time on math homework itself. And that again, that's that pattern that we see over and over and over again in all of these disciplines is girls are very diligent yeah. with their schoolwork. Right. They're very we're very good at, at making the grade, at studying, at sitting down and doing these things, whereas boys might just be more actively engaged with it on a, more of a, a comprehensive level. For instance, the percentage of girls taking pre-calculus slash analysis at 37% was higher, actually, than the percentage of high school guys at 34% who were taking those same classes. Right, and the same
1: trend holds true for the percent of girls taking Algebra 2, which was 78 compared to guys 74%, but an equal percentage of males and females in high school took calculus at 17%.
0: Yeah, and a side note, and I'm not entirely sure how this necessarily relates directly to the gender gap but there was one finding that girls who take calculus are 3 times more likely to study math in college so not entirely sure but i thought that was yeah that was kind of interesting it's like an interesting predictor but when you look at the performance overall of Boys and girls on math exams, it's usually, you know, a bell curve where you have the, the best and the brightest and then the not so great at math on the, on the, on the other end. And you have more boys populated on either end of that math bell curve. So you have a lot of guys, more guys in fact, who are really, 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 really good at math. Mm-hmm. But you have more guys than girls who are really, 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 really not so good at math. Hmm. So they're thinking, that that high end of the bell curve with that pocket of math savants are skewing our perception to say that, oh, well, guys are just better than math at mm-hmm. math. Whereas it's like, no, actually, guys are just more spread out. They have more of the math performance extremes. interesting Well, I mean, speaking of gaps, let's look at uh, socioeconomics
1: and ethnicity, which is a factor that you mentioned earlier, Kristen, Um Studies have found that white and Asian Pacific Islander students and those from higher income families post significantly higher scores than their counterparts who are black, Hispanic or American Indian or who are from lower income families.
0: And you're going to see that reflected in the low numbers of non-white American women in math. They are earning only 5% of the bachelors in math. And so if you want an argument for maybe some more social or environmental things that will contribute to those gaps in learning, this is that. Because if you look at those same ethnicities, if you go to different countries, you can see that nature versus nurture argument being one fully in favor of nurture. Absolutely. And one example of
1: this is Asian American students. It's a cultural thing. And if you like, if you even think back to our Tiger Mom episode that we did, when a culture and or a family unit individually um, emphasizes the importance of education of whatever subject or education in general, you see better performance So speaking of nature versus nurture, UZ from the University of Michigan told the New York Times that there is good survey data showing that this disbelief in innate ability and the conviction that math achievement can be improved through practice is a tremendous cultural asset in Asian society and among Asian Americans.
0: Yeah, and he was talking about how if you perform poorly in math, guess what, your parents are simply going to push you to perform Better because they have more of a growth mindset, thinking that oh, that math isn't just some innate ability that you are born with by virtue of your X or Y chromosomes, but rather something that you can learn and adapt. Um, and side note, Icelandic girls. If we have any uh, Icelandic listeners? Girls in your nation are apparently math geniuses, yeah. and they're not entirely sure why. But when they were looking at global math exam numbers. Icelandic girls outperforming that is interesting. i wonder I wonder if that has to do with, you know, maybe different gender roles. yeah, because when you move to Scandinavia, a lot of times you have places like Norway, Iceland, Sweden that always consistently rank as being the most female friendly, yeah, or female friendliest, I should say <laughs> grammatically correct. Um, but In Iceland, in Japan, all around the world, girls' anxieties about being good enough in math do hold steady from country to country. In other words, even though Icelandic girls, for instance, are performing really well, they will report higher concerns about, well, maybe they're not good enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, that does make me, speaking of
1: self-reflection through this STEM series, that does make me think back to my math experiences. And there was such a, well... Not that my family was like, you know, they were slave drivers or anything, locking me in the basement until I did my math homework. But, you know, there was this push to get really, really good grades. And so I'm wondering now, you know, I'm having a moment, Kristen. Like, I'm wondering now if, you know, maybe my grades were just eh, in math. You know, like I would have been a C student or something, but I had to get that high B or that A. Mm-hmm. Hmm, maybe I wasn't actually as bad at math.
0: Probably not. Probably not. Well, and we're going to get into that issue of self-assessment and talking about what is keeping us from really closing up this math gender gap and really debunking that stereotype that girls are bad at math, that we're just naturally not as good at it, that we're going to have to study above and beyond in order to succeed right when we come back from a quick break. So right before
1: the break, we were talking about confidence in math and self-assessment. And we're going to look at a few different aspects of what keeps women and girls from progressing in their mathematical studies. And a lot of this is coming from the great report, Why So Few? Women in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, which was created for the American Association of University Women. And so one of these cultural factors limiting girls' interest in math is that whole self-assessment issue like I was just talking about. You know, maybe I was a little bit better at math than I thought I was, but because I needed that A, I I thought I kind of stunk at math. And so Kimberly Showman, who's a UC Davis sociologist, found that girls whose math test scores are at the top are less likely than boys with average or good scores to pursue science and engineering careers she found that women are more cautious about entering those fields unless they have very high scores to begin with.
0: Yeah, and this is a familiar theme throughout all of these STEM episodes um, because on top of that, not only is there that negative self-assessment going on, but also those cultural stereotypes of where men and women belong. If we think of your prototypical mathematician. He's probably a, a nerdyish looking guy in a tweed jacket and big glasses. And people are more likely to associate math and science with men than women. And on top of that, there's that penalty. They often hold negative opinions of women in these more stereotypically masculine positions. Women are judged to be less competent than men unless they are clearly successful. But if she is She's considered less likable. Oh, my God. It's it's an incredible catch-22 that female mathematicians find themselves in. That seems like an unsolvable equation. (laughs) I would like to get more math puns in this episode, if possible. I'm just warning you. Um, But when we move through the math pipeline, uh, Stephen Cece and Wendy Williams, who are a husband-and-wife psychological science team in 2010, wanted to look at... What was going on with the drop off? Because we talked about how we have 43 percent of women earning those math related bachelors, but then 26 percent pretty large drop earning the PhDs and even fewer than that actually pursuing math related professions. And so they wanted to dig through to see what was going on. And they said, you know what, it's not necessarily sex discrimination. It's not necessarily that women are being penalized for not being as likable, for maybe wanting to uh, assume these more stereotypically masculine roles.
1: Right, because, I mean, they even point out that women are slightly more likely than men to be interviewed for and be offered tenure-track jobs in math-related fields. Instead, women are choosing not to go into math-heavy fields or dropping out once they started, and a lot of that has to do with not only the roles that women play in society and that they are expected to play in the family, but also just sort of the dreams and aspirations that young girls have um, about what they want to be when they grow up, whether it's math related or not.
0: Yeah, one example they gave was rather than a ton of girls saying they wanted to grow up and be a physicist, they usually say they would want to be something like a doctor or a veterinarian. Again, echoing that engineering episode where women are more likely than men to select a college major or a career field that has some social aspects some some altruistic impact which being a doctor being a veterinarian obviously that might make more sense than being a physicist not to say huh. though once you dig into physics and all the real world impacts obviously there are some cool things that are happening there but it's just not that the education isn't there from the get-go we are informing girls of these choices
1: Right. And CeCe and Williams also point out that there is another aspect at work here, and that is that among men and women with comparable math skills, women are more likely to have outstanding verbal abilities. So maybe more doors are open to them if they want to pursue slightly different sort of a tweak on a math job. And they they said that guys in math have fewer options,
0: basically, except to stick with math. But in the cases where women do stick with math, uh, if we're looking more into academia, women are more likely to drop out after they start a job as a professor, often because of the child care issue, because the workload required to get tenure often does not mesh very well with the workload of caring for a child. Whereas a lot of young male professors are more likely to have a stay at home spouse. Yeah, the study author
1: said that this, at the same time that a, a mathematician, male or female, is trying to do all of this work to pursue tenure, that also tends to fall within the same years where man or, or woman, you're, you're going to want to start getting married, having kids, raising those kids. And so just because of social breakdowns and social expectations, it seems that more women in this field than men are giving up on
0: math to pursue, to dedicate themselves more to the family. And this is the same kind of off-ramp, in quotes, that we see in pretty much any other profession where there does seem to come a point that for a lot of women you hit that crossroads of, am I going to have a family and dial back or am I going to forge onward with my career? But perhaps within STEM and specifically talking about math, it's magnified because we are still digging ourselves out of just this historical legacy of it being a, a very male-dominated realm, especially when we're talking about the old guard of STEM academia.
1: Right. And, and, you know, going back to what I said about women possibly dropping out of math in greater numbers to dedicate themselves more to a family or to a career that's not as demanding – I'm not in any way, you know, placing blame on the women themselves. You know, as Williams points out, universities can and should do a lot more for a woman and for those men engaged in comparably intensive caretaking. They more should be done in the field itself at the colleges and universities themselves to make this lifestyle, this this career
0: choice more um, welcoming. Yeah. And there's a generational impact of attracting more female math professors, because those women are going to serve as those visible reminders to younger female students taking those early math classes that, hey, she's doing this. Hey, I can do that. Maybe there is more female to female mentorship that can start happening. Um, That visibility factor that we talk about again and again comes up with this as well. And then rooting even farther back from college into elementary school, it's so imperative that we break through that stereotype and the stereotype threat that girls are bad at math. Right. Because believing in the potential
1: for intellectual growth improves scores and outcomes, basically believing that it is not nature that leads us to be good or bad at one thing or another.
0: Yeah, it's this whole issue of the growth mindset versus a fixed Mindset and girls who believe that intelligence can expand with experience and learning tend to do better on math tests specifically, and they're more likely to say they want to continue to study math in the future. Right, because as we've talked about in our other STEM
1: episodes, those negative stereotypes about girls' abilities lower their
0: test performances. So thankfully, there are prominent mentors and role models out there from the classrooms. We've had women already writing in to us saying, I teach math because I want to... Inspire and mentor other girls to get involved with math, which is incredible. And you can track that all the way up to higher profile examples of women like Danica McKellar, who played Winnie on The Wonder Years, who wrote a book called Math Doesn't Suck. And even though, if you're not familiar with the book, that might sound like, oh, she just wrote a book. What's the big deal? But it actually was met with a lot of critical acclaim. And I I read an excerpt from it. And she does a great job of explaining what turned her on to math, and also how math can have a direct impact on girls' day-to-day lives and why, in so many ways, math can make your life better.
1: Yeah, and other podcast uh, shout-out, she was on an episode of The Nerdist, and she sounds... So awesome and intelligent and great and is obviously such a great role model
0: yeah. for young women. Um And then there's also initiatives like the Advantage Testing Foundation's Math Prize for Girls. Uh, in 2013, for instance, 276 girls competed in the fifth annual competition. So <laughs> there are definitely girls out there who are interested in math, joining these competitions. Yeah, and I, I
1: like that there seem to be there seems to be this huge push from significant organizations to encourage girls in math. Um, the Institute for Advanced Study, along with Princeton, hosts an 11-day mentoring program for undergrad, grad, and postdoc women in mathematics. So to try to close up that pipeline caulk all those
0: cracks in it and keep them in there. And also, just for another example, with higher education, MIT has its Women in Math Conference to celebrate students, alumni, and faculty contributions to mathematics. And there are new grants now being offered for women at the earlier phases of their math careers before we're getting into the whole tenure track issue, just starting to incentivize women to study and stick with math. And part of me wishes that this episode of math could have just been highlighting all of the lives of female mathematicians like Euphemia Lofton-Hayes, the the first African-American woman to earn a Ph.D. in math in the United States, just to give as many examples as possible of, hey, no, look, look at what we've done and we can do so much more. Yeah. But we have to at some point somehow culturally uproot that idea that the lady brain Just didn't cut out for all those numbers and things.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, don't ever read the comments on the Internet. Uh, When we were doing research for this, I mean, there were some great articles out there about some incredible women doing incredible things in the STEM fields. But judging by the comments there, I mean, there is that huge perception that still exists. But people talk about these perceptions of women as if they are hard and true facts. Like, well, I mean, women's brains just aren't wired for these things, right?
0: Well, I feel like you have to look at it on an individual basis. I feel like different brains are drawn to different types of things, which is good. Right. It's good that we're not all mathematicians walking around, and it's good that we're not all poets walking around. You know what I right. mean? I think it's important to remember that bell curve and how we're scattered around all of its many contours, both on the more math side and more on the the verbal side. Right. And so I, I would encourage... Um, all of
1: our math or STEM inclined listeners to go to our Facebook page and write your stories. We've been getting some really incredible, inspiring, encouraging stories from, from women. And I think it would be great if you guys just continued to post them for other women to see.
0: Yeah. And we this is something that we would like to continue in terms of spreading the word, helping out in terms of the visibility, because obviously Caroline and I are not <laughs> women in STEM, but we recognize the value of getting more women and girls engaged and also promoting the work of women who are doing incredible things already. And so this is not an initiative that we want to stop just with this podcast. So yeah, head over to our Facebook, tweet us at mom Stuff podcast, send us your letters, mom dot uh, We really want to hear from you and hear what's really going on outside of all these studies and statistics we've been tossing out in the past four episodes to really learn what it's like out there for women in STEM. So with that, we are going to take a quick break and then get back to a couple of letters. And now, how about some letters? (laughs) Well, speaking of the anecdotes we've been receiving from STEM women listening, I have a letter here from Cassidy who wrote, thank you for your recent podcast on women in science. I wanted to drop you a line about an encounter I had with my advisor in graduate school. I have a PhD in biochemistry. A group of us have traveled to see a play about Rosalind Franklin's discovery of the structure of DNA and Watson and Crick's involvement. After the play, we were talking about James Watson's views on women and minorities in science, which are not favorable. And my advisor at the time made a comment stating that, well, he may have a point. I mean, sometimes the cells are ready at two in the morning. I just remember staring at him in horror and saying, well, if that's the case, then I'll be there at two in the morning. Just thought I would share. So thanks, Cassidy. PhD in biochemistry. I just raised the roof for you a little bit, Cassidy.
1: Okay, I have a letter here from Emily. Uh, She says, uh, while she was listening to our STEM episodes, she was knuckle-deep in formalin, preserving tissue samples for disease and parasite analysis by histopathology. NBD. No big deal. No big deal. All right. So, Emily writes, I'm a lab tech at a marine research lab that focuses on shellfish. In my lab and in many labs I have visited, most of the actual work is done by female students and technicians of varying levels of education, B.S. to Ph.D., while the higher-up men are stuck in their offices writing grant proposals. However, this seems to be changing since two of the three recently appointed professors are women. Otherwise, nearly all of my fellow lab folk are women, two male to 16 female. The classes and tours held at our facility are typically dominated by female students, and it seems like the majority of students at the scientific conferences I've been to have been female. I think that the gender gap will continue to close as people realize the absurdity of the idea that there are functional differences in the brains of men and women as applied to STEM aptitude. She says, thanks for spreading the word and entertaining me while you're at it. You got it, Emily. And thank you for writing in. And you get
0: that shellfish research. Uh, thanks to everybody who's written in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And you can also find us on Facebook. Message there. Like us while you're at it. And you can also like plenty of stuff over on our Instagram. We're at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And also on Tumblr. We're StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And if that's not enough, and surely it's not, you can also find us on YouTube. We're at YouTube.com slash you. With over 100 videos to watch, so get cracking and don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.